Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we welcome back co-founders Dan and Alex from 2U Laundry. As our longtime listeners here know, we have had Dan on very early on in the podcast, and Alex joined us a couple years ago. With their recent successful fundraising round that they closed earlier this year, we thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring them both on together and talk about the evolution of 2U Laundry over the years, specifically back into the pandemic and, and what's happened and transpired since. A great podcast in, in a surprising way was the ability to see Dan and Alex together and how they worked off of each other and worked with each other throughout the podcast. Wasn't expecting to, to see that, but as co-founders and, and business partners, to see them uh, together in that capacity and kind of shine was was awesome, um, surprising, and it, and it really shouldn't have been. But I think it comes through well in the podcast and shows you how they've been able to navigate and build this business successfully with multiple pivots and transitions over the course of the years. So really excited to release this podcast to you today and have you enjoy um, the experience and the conversation as much as I did a couple weeks ago when we were able to sit down with the two of them and talk about the evolution of to you laundry so hope you enjoy another iteration another uh version of the charlotte angel connection hey dan and alex welcome to the podcast really excited to have you here today thanks for having us so um uh dave we were just talking a, a second ago about it's it's been a hot minute since we did our original podcast right i think you and i both agreed we were in the single digits um, <laughs> of the podcasting world when we got together and um, and Alex, you and I um, got together a couple of years ago. But um, just recap for audience. I know everybody here in Charlotte knows To You Laundry, right? We all see the, the vans riding around town. But just recap the two of y'all, um, your backgrounds for everybody real quick. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Alex Mersnack, uh, originally from Red Wing, Minnesota. That's where, where Dan and I met, grew up. Um, ended up down in the great state of North Carolina for, for college. Uh, went to Wake Forest University. Um, my dad was a financial advisor, thought I would go do finance and follow in, in those footsteps. And my freshman year worked for a student run laundry and dry cleaning delivery startup called Wake Wash. Um, and how I got into the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful world of laundry. Um, started out as just a bag runner, picked up, you know, dirty clothes from outside college campuses or college kids doors, brought it to laundromats and dry cleaners off campus and just ended up falling in love with the business model, thought it could scale to Duke, Chapel Hill, Vanderbilt. Um, ended up buying it, running it, growing it, and then selling it when we graduated. And, uh, worked for UI for two years before we got right back into the, the wacky world of laundry. That's awesome. Dan? Yeah, thanks for having us back. Uh, Dan DeQuisto, uh, Alex mentioned him and I got a, the blessing of uh, growing up together, being uh, best friends. Uh, the brother that I never had for uh, uh, back in sixth grade is when uh, we kind of joined forces and uh, 
it's been been a wild ride since um, I uh, I stayed up in Minnesota I actually decided to go further north for school uh, <laughs> as as funny as that sounds up there um, and then after uh, joined uh, some startups in Minneapolis doing sales and marketing that's where I got exposed to the startup world drinking the kool-aid of a fast-growing company that was adding 30 40 employees a month uh, raised a ton of capital and everyone was just uh, riding the roller coaster which was which was awesome so it exposed me to uh, what is possible in the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial world uh, when you go all in and uh, got the the chance Alex gave me the call uh, seven eight years ago uh, to come join him here in uh, in the great state of uh, North Carolina specifically Charlotte and uh, uh, started to laundry. I remember we, we were just talking with Juan Garzon actually about it. Uh, we started, we, or we remember pitching uh, and using that as the platform to bring to you to market. Uh, and I think it was January of 2016. So was that seven, almost seven, eight years ago now? That's crazy. Pretty wild. Single digit pitch breakfast. Yeah. yeah. Single digit pitch breakfast, single digit <laughs> podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that's, um, that's crazy. It's been since 2016, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, let's hop in the way, way back machine, right? And um, podcast or not podcast, um, startups um, pivot multiple times throughout their lifespan, right? So um, the original concept for To You Laundry was? Yeah, it was really intended to kind of mirror what we did in college where it was, hey, we're going to be a marketplace. We sit in the middle. We handle logistics. But the cleaning gets outsourced to you know mom and pop laundromat owners, wholesale dry cleaners, and then we do all the you know the demand side acquisition as well, customer acquisition, customer support. But the model was really intended to be we sit in the middle, it scales faster, um, and turns out that that doesn't work for this for this vertical. And we we learned that um, you know through that journey. But originally it was you know we'd sit in the middle, we'd go to dual income families, you know, houses businesses, the high rises uptown, pick up the laundry, bring it to partners, you know, uh, vendor partners, have them clean it and then return it the next day. How, what was the process like of learning that that wasn't gonna work, right? Like how long did, so we start in 2016, we're, we're running down that path. How does that evolution of, oh gosh, this, this model that we thought we were gonna be able to take and run and scale, isn't gonna scale the way we want it to, right? Yeah, I think for us, there were two pieces that were really critical to, to validate or prove out. And one was how we were doing the logistics, because that was one piece that we did control. Do we, and this was in 2015, 16, when Uber and Instacart and Shipped and all these marketplace businesses were taking off. Um, does does that same model work for this? Could we do gig? Could we? And so we had really early on started out with you know, 1099 contractors using their own vehicles. But then we found out the pool of people that are willing to drive their own cars that aren't you know beat up or run down you know or reliable it was just smaller and smaller and you have to have a smartphone and as soon as we started adding all those requirements it made it really hard for us to dictate who was available for a shift that day how long could they work and they really started looking a lot more like w2s and we thought do we just get ahead of it do we get company-owned vehicles wrap them hot pink and you know really flashy and noticeable and also we get all these moving billboards and so we stumbled into that just by way of trial and error and seeing other companies you know, that were a year in front of us in the same category. You know, Washio and Rinse were the two brands on the West Coast doing similar to what we're doing now. Um, and they were struggling with the, the unit economics of the on-demand model. And so we 
jumped out ahead of it, got the branded vehicles and checked the box there. The second bucket was, you know, could we rely on the vendors to produce a high quality product on the, the, the clothing and the cleaning side? And so we learned not from trial and error, but from the successes and failures of others. So Washio, huge competitor, they'd raised $20 million from Ashton Kutcher and Nas and um, some really big brand name VCs out in San Francisco. And they went out of business eight months, 10 months into us starting 2U in Charlotte after raising $20 million. And so we, Dan and I called the founders up, we called their lead investors up who also led Instacart's early rounds. And we're like, hey, we're, you know, we think there's an opportunity here. We think the market is huge. We know you guys do too. You wouldn't have started or backed it if you didn't. Do you think it's possible or did you did you guys discover everything there is to discover? It, just, it isn't. Like, no, we do think it is. We burned through a ton of money. Here's what we did wrong. Here's what we would do differently. And the two things that jumped out were you can't do on demand for laundry and dry cleaning. The customer doesn't even you know, rank it all that high. They just want the quality and they want the convenience. But William, you know, Dan, you know, you're not sitting here saying, I wish someone would come take this shirt off my back. You know, you've got clothes for tomorrow. It's more about quality and consistency than it is speed. And so we validated, all right, route-based FedEx or UPS for laundry is better than Uber for laundry. The second piece that they shared with us, though, is quality control of the laundry product. You can't rely on the, the mom and pop laundromat owner. And the reason being is it's a, they're a landlord, basically. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a, a duplex. It's a, you know, maybe a couple short-term rentals, Airbnb equivalents for them. It's not a ton of work. It's five to 10 hours a week. They're collecting cash and that's it. And we're going to them saying, hey, we need you or a manager to be in here 30, 40, 50 hours a week. We need to hire a team of 10 to 15 employees. We need to layer technology onto your business. And all they heard was, you're gonna double my revenue. Sure, I'll figure it out. The landlord is not an, you know, is an operator, a day-to-day you know, -day operator like that. And there's just, you're immediately swimming upstream and trying to force a you know, round peg into a square hole and it just, it, it doesn't work. And so we learned that from Washio. They, they saw it at a much larger scale than we did. We took that feedback and, and pivoted. I'll hop back for a second. You picked up the phone and called the the founders of the company that, that failed. Hey, yeah. how'd you get the phone number? I think it was a LinkedIn message or an email, which turned into a phone number, which turned into a call. Um, but just, we've always been really good about hustling our way into people that know what we don't know or know a lot more than we do about something and not afraid to ask for help. And sometimes very persistently. We're actually just talking about an example this morning of someone that we're trying to talk to in the, the real estate and construction world for franchises. Okay. And Dan was like, how many emails have you sent them? And I think the answer was like eight or nine. And I'll, I got a reminder to send them another one tomorrow. Yeah, yeah just it's, we'll, we'll go until we eventually get someone to, come on, just give us 15 minutes. We, we promise it won't be a huge waste of time. We just want to learn from you. I think that's the big thing to call out that I look back on our, our culture and how we challenge ourselves as we scale is like going back to the core of how we started this. And it's, it was, we were somewhat naive, but I, I think that that played to our benefit and we were scrappy and willing to do the hard things. And the hard thing with what we were just talking about with our first pivot of most startup VC backed companies aren't willing to go deeper into doing the hard thing. And they're trying to find ways that technology just solves it all. But we decided that we were willing to do anything to solve this problem and that if that meant us hiring more people to go inside of the the laundromats to do the processing ourselves like we knew that that's what it was going to take to to scale and that's that's been the the sort of the core of our pivots ever since as we continue to do the hard things that others aren't willing to do and i think that's that's something that we challenge ourselves to remain at our core as we grow so 
Dan, when Alex said that he sent eight or nine emails to the um, to the real estate guy, is that sufficient, or did you did, <laughs> yeah. you, did you tell him it's, it's did getting there? <laughs> um, we gotta we gotta explore some uh, other unique ways, but uh, yeah, it's getting up there. <laughs> he's he's almost he's almost done what he can do then. Huh? Yeah. yeah, we've we've gotten so many times back that uh, the email response. I think uh, Garth Moulton was actually the one if you if you remember that is uh, we yeah. met him early in the entrepreneurial uh, startup scene years and years ago. And I remember him responding, saying like, I love your guys' persistence, like, let's, let's get coffee. And uh, that was an influential conversation. And uh, yeah, he helped us uh, quite a bit in the early days. How um, how well, so, um, I mean, long time friends, right? I mean, you've been friends, I think you're sixth, sixth grade, right? Yeah. So um, he tells you he's reached out eight times and you say, you know, what the hell, I mean, why are you being a slacker, right? So, how does how how well does y'all's relationship work and play off each other as co-founders? Because um, it's a hard world, right? I mean, sometimes things break, and like, how do y'all hold each other accountable um, yet remain childhood friends, right? I mean, there's times I want to strangle my childhood <laughs> friend, and I see him twice a year, right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a challenge. Uh... Hey. I think <laughs> no. I'm not going to say it's, it's perfect. I mean, we we were just talking about it literally two days ago, and like how and where we can lean in, and especially in this scale phase with where we're at today, and uh, we understand that we before starting this, we didn't have five, ten, fifteen years of experience. This is our, we're first time founders, and we want to remain at the helm of the ship, and we'll do whatever uh, it takes. And we know we're going to have to have those challenging conversations. Uh, both professionally and personally, and I think we do a good job of that. And Al- it's worked really well. Alex Alex calls us out quite a bit, and uh, it makes clear sense as you uh, obviously hear the the stories of don't go into business with your friends and family. But in our uh, in our world, it, it works really well because we have complementary skill sets and always have. And uh, that's where I I believe it's worked really well. He's very much more ops finance focused, and that's where he leans in heavily. I have more of a sales marketing background and lean in heavily there. And then we, we cross kind of pollinate that uh, challenges and learnings with mentors and advisors. And I think that's worked really well for us. So we're, we're in Augusta Masters Week right now. So what I'm hearing is you in a best ball um, format, you're the driver and you're the you're around the green. Right? Is it the fine to you? I don't know about that. <laughs> so, He's off in the woods yeah. a couple of times. That's awesome. Um, so. Um, so we're we're running through. Um, we've called founders of failed businesses and um, actually gotten them to tell us what their challenges are. Then we're continuing to run. So, um, what's um, so? How do y'all start to to? Because um, at this point in time, y'all raise capital, right? Mm-hmm. So, and how many times have y'all raised capital now? Four. Yeah, four times. Okay. Um, so how are you starting to deploy that money and test those different theories and whatnot that you're learning from the the failure, right? Because just because they said, hey, we should have done this doesn't mean that's the golden road, right? So how are y'all testing those things as you run? So it's been this kind of precision threading a needle from the beginning. I think that's what makes a startup as challenging as it is, but also as addicting and as, as fun as you have this, what I call good ego, where you think you're going to be one of the 10 people that can figure out how to thread the needle at the right time in the right place. And so a lot of it, I think, is knowing and 
being able to make decisions off of the best information available, not the perfect information available and looking for a hundred percent solution. So a lot of it's been us getting close to 70, 80% and then just going, but then also having the discipline to pull back. And so that Washio example is one of those where we thought we can outsource, we can, you know, it's close enough. We can rely on the mom and pop for now. We'll eventually vertically integrate. That's a 70% solution. Let's go. And we see Washio fail after having 40 of them. And that's maybe a pullback moment, right? Where we have to stop, where I think a lot of other founders might say, no, we'll keep going, 60, 70% is good, just go, go, go. We, we have the answer, we're different than them, we're gonna be better than them, it's fine. We looked at it and said, they've raised a hell of a lot more money than we have, they're in a lot more cities than we are, they've got really smart people behind them, there's something that we don't know, let's stop, let's listen, let's reflect. Um, and so we've just continued to try to keep that true. Is It's okay to have good ego sometimes, but you also have to know when to have humility and to raise your hand and say, I don't know this, or something feels off or something feels wrong, I need to stop and start over, retreat and reflect. How do you retreat and reflect? Um, you come into this room and you draw stuff up on the whiteboard or um, so what's y'all's process like there? Yeah, I think I think early on at this stage that we're kind of talking about, this was late 2016, we started getting product market fit, like the demand was there and where it was challenging with Alex was talking about was the operational sort of supply chain side. And we were pretty fortunate, uh, again, or in the early days of getting scrappy and trying to surround ourselves with people who have done this or uh, have been in positions like that. And we we met at that time a, a minority co-founder. He's more technical focused. Um, Caleb Lamb was his name. And he helped challenge us drastically uh, um, a lot. Every weekend we were meeting, having uh, core core team meetings, and that's when we continued to just talk about and reflect on what wasn't going right. And we leveraged data with what limited data access that we had. And we just used that to kind of drive the decisioning to just iterate with like going that true zero to one phase where you're 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 testing things failing taking a step back going and it all centered around like having those tough conversations early and being open to that that push from somebody like that who's done it before that's the point in time that y'all started your own lab right your own laundromat or we started that in 2018 2018 okay the that that's part of that process that first kind of pullback evaluate and move forward is that is that when the book came out of that so out of them we realized we can't rely on the mom and pop line yep. there's just a lot of upstream stuff that we're, we're dealing with but we're not bankable we don't have the cash to, to build our own stores and so there was enough again data from them data from our own experience we knew we needed to solve it we needed to stop we can't go launch a second city until we figure it out here in charlotte and we noticed laundromats generate most of their revenue on the weekends, Monday through Friday, underutilized assets. People are blue collar workers, laundromat customers are, are working. They're not doing laundry at 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. on a, a Wednesday. So we started going with our own teams into the laundromat. Okay, it's like our 70% solution, maybe got it to 75. You know, it was a little bit better, still not great, but step in the right direction. Uh, what ended up getting us to the point where we built our own stores was doing that version in four laundromats where we had our own teams a lot of frontline hourly employees and trying to again force a, a, a round peg into a, a square hole and it was the analogy i use is, is like asking a car dealership to also manufacture the cars they're just they're not set up for it they don't have the space the infrastructure the team the capability and we were doing the same thing we're pushing thousands of pounds of people's clothing into a two two thousand square foot laundromat that has walk-in customers in it and you're just co-mixing all this stuff together. We had to build our own locations that were built to spec for both the walk-in and 
uh, you know, trucks coming in and unloading a bunch of volume. Um, and so that's where we pivoted into, we need to build our own store and partnered with Electrolux and kind of forced it to, to be. Um, so recognizing the fact that, I didn't even think about the fact that there was going to be walk-ins at the same time that y'all were in there, right? So, I mean, that certainly creates logistical challenges and everything else. Um, not to mention just a weird existence at that point in time, right? So um, Electrolux, um, great partner, um, had you stumble into them? LinkedIn message? <laughs> so this was, I think every founder has some element of luck and just right timing in their story. And ours was the Electrolux portion. We had just had a Charlotte Business Journal article written about us. Um, and hey, this is a you know, laundry company in Charlotte and they, they leverage the underutilized assets in other laundromats. Like this is so cool and innovative. Um, and someone from the Electrolux team reached out to us trying to sell us equipment basically. Hey, you should be, you know, you should have your own stores and I can sell you the equipment. And we explained to them, we're not in a position to buy equipment. It's, we're not bankable. We're 24, I think at the time, we don't have any money saved up you know, at that level to, to go buy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. And the salesperson, after seeing what we were doing, thought, hey, this is different. So he ran it up the ladder. We ended up talking to the head of laundry, Tom Washbrook. And they're like, look, we, we believe in what you guys are doing. We can help finance the majority of this first build. Um, downside for us is pretty limited because you're doing a couple million in pickup and delivery already. So you're gonna make your note payments day one. Most laundromats, you know, it takes them a year to get profitable. You guys are gonna be making payments day one. Um, plus you're gonna have a new walk-in stream. So we're, we're not worried there. The upside is if this works, you guys probably wanna build 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 for these stores. That's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment sales for us. It's worth us to take a bet and let's go do it. So just honestly, luck and timing. Um, how'd the first store um, kind of, um, how'd the first store turn out, right? So what were the lessons learned from store number one? Yeah, uh, I mean, again, the way that we kind of naive, we didn't know the laundromat industry. Um, we knew it through experience of, of working inside of a few of them in Charlotte. And so uh, we took the necessary approach to do market research and uh, the, the good thing was we took the same lens that we applied to the 2U business, putting the customer first, trying to build technology into it and just a five-star experience, like going through that whole exercise of what is a five-star experience. And we walked into other laundromats. We saw that 90, 95% of them were run down, old equipment, uh, but they were they were packed Saturdays and Sundays. And so the, the demand was there, uh, but the customer experience wasn't. And so we took that those learnings and wanted to uh, build a five-star experience. And that's what we did. Uh, we bought a piece of real estate uh, on South Boulevard here, uh, just down the road. It was an old McDonald's, uh, and we invested a good bit of money into it. We knew that the return would be there uh, if we could even do a 2x better laundromat than a typical rundown. And, and laundromats on their own are great investments. Uh, they're profitable quickly, and uh, we believe that the the return would, would be there. And so we we looked at, at the, the way to bring that to market. and. I mean, we invested in brand new equipment, state of the art with technology where customers could pay with cash or mobile, uh, bright, clean, um, uh, comfortable seating lounge. We knew that there was families uh, gonna be core customers. And so we put kids play areas, arcade games, free Wi-Fi, and we just treated it like a, a core uh, part of our business and understood that this was gonna be the path forward. We would needed to invest in it the same way that we were treating our, our 2U customers. and. And uh, it's wor it worked really well. I think uh, with it, it was profitable uh, within three or four months, uh, ultimately doing what we wanted to. And then on the 2U side, 
um, that was just additional layer uh, on top of it, allowing us to really build out a core culture with our team inside of that store, uh, ultimately proving what is now our, our core go-to-market model uh, and strategy that we're, we're sprinting towards with building hundreds of stores that we had anticipated years ago. The original concept with it was you were gonna you were gonna own each store, right? You weren't gonna run down the franchise model, right? So yeah, like the the evolution originally marketplace don't own anything, go yeah. quickly asset light to shit. We can't rely on mom and pop laundromat owners to all right. We're gonna own it corporately, yeah. and so that was the path we were on up until COVID happened. Was let's just go build a bunch of corporate stores. We'll layer to you on top of them. There'll be these full service kind of hybrid locations that kind of existed elsewhere but not on a regional even national and not even on a regional level you know so we thought we'd be the first to market to go build these beautiful brand new both walk-in drop-off wash dry fold pickup and delivery the whole you know, the whole operation anything clothing if, doesn't matter what part of the customer spectrum you're on you could use our services um but COVID happened yep it <laughs> did happen um it's funny more and more these days i um, I think back to that time period and just think how crazy it was, right? Like, uh, I played golf recently um, and was reminded that they had styrofoam cups in the holes so that the ball, right? So you wouldn't lift or you couldn't touch the pin or um, oh it goodness. was, I mean, the whole world was crazy. Some companies sold these like metal eventually like permanent things that they put around the flagpole that you could put your i think foot under and just lift it up with your foot the ball would come out and it's crazy you'd grab it it's and it is just a, a crazy time period in life that we'll never forget for sure um but it also impacted y'all right so um you're running down that route and then COVID happens and then we decide that's not the route we're going to run run down anymore right yeah so we the thing that was really tough for us prize leaders for the first time is we just raised six million dollars in the fall of 2019 launched raleigh we were under contract on a 10,000 square foot location in atlanta nice. electrolux had flown us to sweden you know to meet like their global headquarters check out how the machines were made did and you go there in the wintertime <laughs> it was yeah it was, it, was, it was cold it's neat how uh, my wife did that um and those people sit outside at cafes in like five degree weather <laughs> yeah. with their kids sleeping in strollers right it's crazy but anyway, so uh, anyways, you went to Electrolux over in Sweden. Yeah, so they, I mean, everything was going relatively well. We launched Raleigh. Uh, we're starting to build out the team. We it's the most money we'd ever raised, you know, to be able to go start hiring pretty tenured, experienced folks instead of that purely scrappy mindset of hey, we'll just you know, bulldoze these brick walls. And even though you could do it surgically and probably better and smarter, yeah. we got to a point where we could start adding to that team some of that experience. And I remember, I think it was late January of, of 2020. Our board, and this I think goes back to what Dan and I were saying about surrounding ourselves with good people. Our board's been phenomenally helpful. They called a meeting and said, look, I don't know why, you know, local governments, regional, you know, us as a country aren't reacting more swiftly to what's coming. You know, it's not here yet, but it is coming. And look what's happening in Europe and Asia, and there's shutdowns and businesses are, you know, people are staying at home. And I imagine the same things are going to happen here. It's not like there's this like just pure bubble over the whole, you know, over the country. Like it's it's going to get there. So they force us to kind of think through this exercise of imagine what's happening, you know, in Italy today. And this was in January 2020 is happening here. What happens to your business? And so we stopped and we like in that moment where you have to stop and you're excited about Raleigh and this 10,000 square foot location in Atlanta and the money you raise and the team you're building. So exciting. Right. And you're so focused on that. But having someone say, hey, stop 
think that's going to, what's, what's happening in Italy is going to happen here. What does that do to you? I'm like, all right, dry cleaning goes away. There's no weddings, no events anymore. People aren't going to the office. That's 30, 40% of our business. So that goes down to zero for who knows how long. I didn't think about the dry cleaning side of it, right? Well, dry cleaning goes away. Uh, pickup and delivery laundry, you know, what you have the capability of doing in your own home, 93% of our customers have a washer and dryer. Does that go away? Do people freak out and they don't want people touching their clothes or do they do even more of it because they want their stuff cleaned more frequently and you know, they're working a full-time job and now they're educating their kids and they're the meal planner and maybe they're busier and they use this even more. We didn't know. And then laundromats, we felt like no matter what happens, people need clean clothes and there's a lot of people that don't have washers and dryers. These are going to have to stay you know, protected and open. Imagine the business keeps going. And so we come back to the board and they're like, you know, our advice is shut anything down that's not profitable until we know is this going to last two weeks or two months or two years? We don't, we don't know. And you don't want to be one of those companies that thinks you're going to spend your way through this and then it lasts longer than you thought and you just wasted a ton of time and money. So we made the hard decision of laying off our marketing team, um, shrinking the operation and really just laser focused on what's working well and what's not working well. And this is a, a once in a lifetime moment to pivot because the world's going to stop here in a second. And it did two months later, three months later, even the NBA shut. That was like the impetus for everything. Yeah. The NBA called the season off and went to the bubble and everything went to shit after that and shut down. <laughs> I forgot about the NBA going into the bubble, yeah. So, um, so that's the point in time that we decide we, I'm, Mars, I'm just part of the team, yeah. <laughs> um, that y'all decide to start the franchise model as well. Yeah. So part of the that like three month window, the board was like, look, everything's on the table at this point. Do you pivot and start picking up and delivering other goods and services? You have this fleet of vehicles and you know technology that helps with routing. And we're like, yes, Amazon's doing, like, we're way too small. We're not, like, Uber, Postmates, all these other companies are way bigger, more equipped to do that. That's not realistic for us to do. But we looked at that. Do we return capital to investors? We looked at that. Do we build more laundromats? Do we stay the course and just kind of wait it out? Um, and so explore, do we build software for laundromats and drive? I mean, we really explored everything. And the two things we kept coming back to were these laundromats, the physical locations do incredibly well during recessionary times, during COVID times, during good times, like they're just, they're just, they're solid. We need to build a lot more of these. They help us with quality and margin for the 2U business, but they're just great businesses on their own. But they're a million and a half to build and we, we have ambitions to build hundreds. So if someone needs to give us hundreds of millions of dollars or a bank needs to give us an endless line of credit, neither of those things are happening or this takes 30 or 40 years and we just chip away. Um, or can we get other people to invest in them? And that's where you know, the idea of franchising started floating around of could we franchise the retail portion? The second part was we've evolved into this business unintentionally that has a ton of frontline hourly uh, you know, labor, which is complicated, hard to manage, high turnover. We've got delivery drivers, people washing clothes, drying clothes, folding clothes, uh, running the laundromats. Can we break that labor up to be you know, more digestible? And again, franchising came in as a way to solve for that. And so we started kicking the can around on, could we franchise just the retail part of the business that allows us to build more locations faster with non-dilutive capital, partners that have skin in the game that care about it just as much as we do. We provide a ton of value on equipment discounts, construction, site selection, branding, go-to-market training. Um, and then all the tech that we've built, they get access to all the 2U volume we can layer on top of. But the difference is, is now we are back to where we started. We're the guys in the middle, the marketplace business that's relying on an existing supply chain. It's just, we happen to build the supply chain on the laundromat side. 
Only this time we get a lot more influence over the size of the store, who the operators are. We don't have to let you know any just anyone in to be a franchisee. We get to interview them just as much as they're interviewing us to be sure that it's the right operator, the one that can handle a team of 10 to 15 per store, that can handle the volume um, and isn't going to nickel and dime us or, you know, two months in say, hey, this isn't for me. I'm out and pull the rug out from underneath us. Just a lot more you know, influence over it. And so Concepted Laundry Lab launched it in the spring of 2021. Fast forward to today, we've sold 108 licenses. We've got eight stores open, 17 more opening this year. Um, and it's just been a lot more well-received. I think even we were all anticipating, um, raised a $20 million Series B in December of last year and are building out the team again and going for it. That's awesome. So you've sold 118? 108. 108, sorry. Um, and how many have been, how many are in operation today? So eight are open now. Okay. Um, and the way that franchising works is typically a franchisee or a franchise you know, group, let's say it's a couple, like the three of us are partners, we want to go buy four Jimmy John's. We'll buy the rights to f- those four locations up front, mm-hmm. but then we build one at a time. We got 12 months to build the first, 16 months to build the second, 12 months after that. To, and so it's over a four or five year period. So those, those 108 are across 29 franchisees and they have, they're on a development schedule to build the 108 over you know, a period of time. The way that you get to building 30, 40, 50 stores at once is bringing more franchisees on that buy you know, three, four, five licenses and or have more sophisticated franchisees that can build two, three, four at a time. I think the big thing again there in that story of you know the fast forward of COVID, incubating Laundra Lab to be able to continue with our mission to expand nationally. I mean, that's We've always been had an ambition to build one of the first nationally recognized brands in this space. And again, to do that, it was uh, the theme of hard things, like getting into franchising. We were challenged that this is a great opportunity. It's blank canvas space. No one's ever really done it in laundromats, but they've been great investments. But franchising is a completely different business model. You're going to be held to a lot of different expectations to provide the support to uh, have these franchise partners succeed. And and we looked at that as just the next challenge and exciting opportunity to continue down uh, our path to build a, a nationally recognized business. And, and it is it is difficult. It is uh, you are set up to have higher expectations to provide support on now finding real estate, constructing them, designing them. Um, supporting them, marketing, et cetera. And we now have these two completely different, but uh, worked married together brands with 2U being the very heavy marketing, logistics, technology focused business to expand that needs Laundry Lab that has real estate construction, like a hard asset, um, different, more partners involved. And, uh, but that's the exciting thing is that uh, I would say our, a lot of our moat has been around doing the hard things, the sweat, the equity, the sweat equity, uh, and uh, um, that path forward is more clear than ever for us, which is the exciting part. So I didn't realize this, but so Laundry Lab that you have the franchises, franchise owned, yep. um, they don't own the the local, what we're, I guess y'all call the 2U business. Yep. So y'all pay those franchisees um, to use those facilities on the off hour times, is that right? So we think of to you as the analogy we use is think of to you laundry as a DoorDash or a Postmates. It's a demand aggregator for an existing restaurant. Yep. In this case, it's a demand aggregator for a laundromat. 
The franchisee, as soon as those vans come and bring those orders, the franchisee is responsible for having their team check in the laundry, wash it, dry it, fold it, um, and package it back up for us to deliver it back. So we own the logistics engine and the marketing engine and the yep. customer support engine. They own the the cleaning and processing engine. So they get paid for it as a result. Yep. And so a lot of laundromats, a lot of people don't know this, is you can you and I could drive in off the street, drop off a bag of our stuff, they'll clean it in a day or two, and we can drive back and pick it up just like you would at a dry cleaner. Yep. And they'll do it for a dollar twenty a pound, a dollar thirty a pound and, and and so we pay our franchisees very similar, very close to that same rate. So we want them to be incentivized and make money off of the 2U volume, just like they would if you or I drove in and dropped it off off the street. Um, and so they're indifferent to whether a bag comes in the front door or in a van and you know 30 of them in the back door. And so we're paying, it's just another you know, huge revenue driver for our franchisees. And it's the value that we can provide, not just in year one and getting their store open, but year five, six, seven, we continue to bring hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in revenue to per location. Any nightmare experiences with franchise owners yet? I mean, we're, we're learning as we go, right? I think, you know, they're partners in, in, in every meaning of that word. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of partnerships, there's gonna be times where you disagree on things or, you know, you expect things to happen one way, especially early like this where there's a learning curve and we're figuring things out, they're figuring things out. And so no nightmare stories yet, thankfully, but certainly, you know, points of friction where we have to, we're learning a whole new skill set of managing through influence and partnership versus an employee who you can say, yeah, hey, this is where you have to be at nine o'clock. You got to do this by, you know, you're, you got to do this throughout the day. This is different. It's, hey, William, this is why this is good for your business. And we're, we're all aligned. We want you to do well. You, know, you want to do well and so trust us you have to, there has to be this element of trust that this will work how's it um how has it been because that opens up the floodgates right like you now you're dropping into cities quickly mm-hmm. and we're we're also trying to promote the to you side yeah. of it as well right so how um how's the logistics side scaling up with the laundry labs as they as they open up across you know multiple cities yeah, I mean, that's the uh, that's been our go to market strategy now was Laundry Lab first. We're not going to go launch a, a market with 2U uh, unless we have Laundry Lab. So we need to stand that Laundry Lab up. It takes time. It takes roughly 12 to 16 months, depending on market, as you look through permitting and construction and all that. Uh, and so it's Laundry Lab first. We're trying to find these partners who can stand up these major markets. Uh, and then our what we're going through right now, big 2023 uh, ambitions are now that we're opening up stores on a monthly basis in these new markets, uh, we're building the playbooks and programs to challenge our, our corporate 2U team to uh, be able to stand up our 2U business within 30 to 60 days of when a laundry lab opens its doors providing that additional revenue stream. And so we're going, we've, we've built out the team, the capabilities, uh, and going through those go-to-market plans right now. 2U has been operating in Charlotte for, since January of 2016. Uh, we had a little bit of taste of uh, expansion with Atlanta and Raleigh pre-COVID and, and post-COVID environment with Laundry Lab being the, the core focus. We launched uh, our first new market was Tampa in November. Uh, learning curve there, trying to figure out how in this new new world um, environment um, with uh, uh, limited sort of uh, uh, focus or limited capacity of, of a lot of different priorities of, of bringing that to you business to market. And now we're hoping to uh, improve and uh, do it in 13 to 15 uh, markets, more uh, additional markets this year as we tr- spin up these laundry labs. Man, y'all don't have enough gray hair yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, it is. Um, what's the? Um, so I mean, you go back to like the, two, the 2017 playbook. Like y'all put that playbook in the trash can yeah. or you put it in the. But you're like dusting that thing off again, right? Oh, trying yeah. to figure out. So, um, what's different in 2023 than what you thought it was going to be in 2017? Yeah, customer behavior. I mean, we can't. Uh, be blind to I mean what COVID has impacted people and and how busy they are I think in a, in good ways um, uh, challenges on I mean going and getting down into marketing I mean the platforms and things like that a lot of changes there uh, have uh, have impacted how how we can uh, broadcast our our messaging and um, there's uh, there's a lot that I think we were really scrappy with in the early days that's that's the tough part is now. Uh, we're expanding quicker, and so we have to be really on our feet, agile, and in, in understanding how we can still r- remain scrappy, because it is a very hyper-local, word-of-mouth uh, business model um, that, that grew naturally uh, with, with here in Charlotte, where we had time, uh, but now we're challenged to move faster as we have uh, more markets. Um, so it's a, a lot has changed. We're still literally learning as we're talking here today on, on what that looks like. Um, but that's the fun part. That's going back to the going back to that the whiteboards and um, trying to tinker and test with with how we how we scale quick. You've had we said earlier, um, and I didn't say congratulations on raising um, the most recent <laughs> round. So um, congratulations on, on raising the most recent round. But um, so you've had investors through four rounds. You've um, you've had a board that's been with you for a while. Um, uh, it's seven years in now, I guess we're moving on eight years in. No success story is overnight. How have your, um, talk about that investor experience, rather. How do you keep them engaged? How do you, um, how do you tell your story to them? Um, I, I think a lot of founders will raise money and say, oh, wow, I just raised money, right? But you've got to keep those investors happy and engaged and informed. So how have y'all been successful in doing that over the last six, seven years? Yeah, so early on, it might have been, I think it was Techstars that kind of taught us this and got us into this rhythm was we at one point were doing like weekly updates and that turned into monthly and we started exposing those to investors. And so for the last probably five years, we've sent a monthly update uh, and recently switched to quarterly, but up until last December, every month sent an update with pretty detailed information on what's going on. Here's the good, the bad, the ugly. Here's where we need your help. We, you know, we're, we're in this together. You know, granted, we're more in the trenches day to day than our investors are, but they believe in us and they want to help. And so we absolutely take advantage of that. It goes back to raising your hand and having humility and you know, knowing what you don't know. And so we'll go and say, hey, we have this issue. We're, we're struggling with Facebook you know, marketing and acquisition. Does anyone know this? Or we're looking for a VP of this position. Does anyone you know this in your network in addition to hey, we missed our numbers by 10%, or hey, this month we were up 30% more than we thought we were, and we sold five franchise deals, and we were only expected to sell one. And you know, So we'll celebrate the wins, but we'll also share some of the tough stuff too, and there's no surprises. So and I think we've done a good job where investors feel like they're in it just you know, right alongside us. Um, what, was, what was this raise, what was different about this most recent raise other than a bigger number? Um, than previous raises, right? Yeah, so given what's going on in the world, I think a lot of people are like, wow, that's it's, you know, impressive. You guys did it at this time. And, and, and how hard was that and how, how difficult? And again, I think we had our, a pretty good moment of luck and right timing again. I, mean, I think it is a really challenging time to raise money and it is near impossible for a lot of companies, especially 
ones in certain sectors and certain industries. And um, for us, I think we found almost a silver bullet in L5 Capital. I mean, they're a perfect partner for us. They get franchising. They're also relatively new, new in their life cycle. And so they understand what we're going through. They, they're operators before they're investors. And so they think a lot like how we do. And after talking to you know, probably 20 other private equity groups, and at this point we're not in the VC world anymore. I mean, franchising is a, an unknown territory for them. VCs don't want to touch franchising. And so we've excluded ourselves from, from that that group, you know, that investor base now. And so a lot of the conversations this time around was with private equity. And you know, they need, you know, they have to underwrite a you know, three, two to, to, to four or three to five X. And it's a lot more risk mitigation for them than a VC who's you know, spraying hundred bets and hoping 10 work. Um, and so a lot of franchises want to see 10, 15 stores open, but L5 was a really good mix of, hey, we can't you know, underwrite a zero. We, need, we also need that two to five X, but we're comfortable going to you know, earlier stage franchise concepts that we really believe in, take a franchisee position as well, invest in the franchisor. Um, and again, just right, right timing and really lucked out finding the right partner for ourselves. So LinkedIn message? <laughs> no, two, two and a half year relationship. Danny Kenny, one of the, the principals at L5, we joke is it's the longest dating either one of us have ever done. But when we were exploring franchising, again, we knew nothing about it. So what did we do? We do what we've always done. We reached out to our investors in that email and to on LinkedIn and who knows about franchising. And L5 was one of the folks we got connected with and they were, here's how we'd structure your FDD. Here's the, the lawyers you should talk to. They even helped us map out our inventory of potential laundry labs we could sell across the country. So we even had a chance to work with them before we even talked about partnering from a capital perspective. And so at that point, it makes diligence you know, a lot easier. And we've already done so much because we've actually worked together on things that, again, right place, right time up front, did the LinkedIn outreach, did the you know, investor email, and then just spent time with them for two years before we started saying, hey, I think we've got something. Let's raise, raise some money and go after it more aggressively. Roadmap from, <clears throat> roadmap from, from here, um, I mean. A thousand stores. A thousand stores. Yep. How quickly? Realistically, I mean, I think it's gonna take, it's a, probably a 10 to maybe even more year journey. Um, and then, you know, you take the, the magnifying glass and it gets fuzzier the further you know further out it gets um the next few years we want to get to 100 stores uh, open in the next you know, next three years or so but knowing that that flywheel and the team that you're building the processes that you're building you know we only opened a couple last year we're opening you know, 20 this year can we do 40 next year can we do 80 the year after that and getting to a point where all of a sudden it becomes you know 100 plus stores a year a thousand feels a lot more attainable once you get to that that point we have a clear path at this at this point in time to uh, having Laundry Labs stood up in over 40 markets uh, by the end of next year. And with that, with our plan and uh, hopeful aggressiveness with go to market and 2U, 2U is going to be right behind it. And so within a pretty relatively quick time, we are a national brand with what we've been anticipating uh, with uh, both both brand with both concepts, Laundry Lab and to you, and that's that's right in front of us. And we all know how fast time goes, and and uh, it's pretty crazy to kind of sit here and even say it out loud that we that their stores opening multiple stores a month. That's happening. We're launching multiple markets this year, and even by the end of this year, we should be in 20, 20 different markets across the country, major markets with both brands. So it's incredibly exciting to sit here and say 
that within a pretty relatively quick time we're we're on our way to achieving what we've what we've set out to do seven eight years ago international nothing's off the table nothing's off the table here we end up in england right yeah. <laughs> or you're from originally yeah. <laughs> oh that's great um so a thousand stores though that puts you i mean your multiple stores in same state yep. and i'm assuming multiple stores in same city yeah right? how saturated can a city get yep yeah I, I, the way that i look at it and to simplify it is any major market over let's say a million million and a half people we believe we can position at least 10 laundry labs and then obviously two of you will come behind it and so even within uh 50 cities uh 50 of the major markets across the country 10 laundry labs in each i mean that's a clear path to about 500. okay um competition there is a, um, I mean, there's of course mom and pop laundromats. There's one other laundromat franchise out there. Um, they started a couple of years before us, but outside of that, it's kind of the two of us gone after is McDonald's, Burger King. Have, <laughs> have y'all, um, uh, have you, have y'all heard back from uh, Zawashio? Have they you, reached back out to ask what y'all done? Or to Jordan, you, I know went on to work at, Am he was doing something at Amazon. I don't know if he's yeah. still there or if he's back in the, cause he had, started a few restaurants before then one of them was like california burrito there was like a pretty big yeah restaurant franchise in california so i i'm i haven't looked but i'm sure he's starting something else they didn't become investors no. <laughs> yeah so that would have been the ultimate right if you could have you know roped them in to become investors um so you uh you both got wedding rings on now right did i see that i'm engaged i get You're engaged? married in august yes i do okay Yep. So um, we've, been, we've been growing up along, uh, growing the business and yeah. uh, growing up ourselves, going from 23 to now 31. Yeah. Uh, life changes quickly. It does. It moves fast, as you just said a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, so what's, um, ha um, have y'all grown up in Charlotte, right? So let's talk personal for <laughs> just a second, right? I mean, because you are, you were 23 years old when you were standing outside doing the last podcast with <laughs> me, right? <laughs> Um, so what's personal life been like here in Charlotte as, and how have y'all, I mean, originally y'all could work as much as you wanted to, because it was just the two of you and you didn't have spouses or fiancés or whatever to, to worry about. Um, so how, have they been incorporated into the business? They, they get free laundry. So we get a pass. <laughs> <once in a while. laughs> That's how you win your, win them over, huh? Yes. Yeah, any, any guys listening, any, any ladies listening, you can save a ton of time signing up for two of you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, we've been we've both been very fortunate that we have great support systems uh not only here with the team we're building but also in our personal lives and they they understand it they get it we're st we're still we're still young we like to think we're still young and this is the time to do what we're doing and we, we haven't let off the gas at all and i would say in most cases we've doubled down i mean we're, we're alex and i are in here six seven days a week uh there, there's more balance um especially with bringing on incredible team members uh, but we we have had to grow up on on the personal side as well. And I think literally as you ask that, I was quickly thinking and visuals came in. Or when we first started, we had five guys living in Alex's uh, condo in Uptown, uh, twelve hundred square feet, three bedrooms, yeah. five guys and a dog. And a dog. Yeah, you can't forget that. We had three mattresses uh, all in alex's room i mean going back to those times it was, it was some of the best times ever that we we want i want to have again like those those were the cool uh parts to look back on and uh now we both own places uh living with our significant others and i'm sure families are in the future neither of us have kids yet 
um, Alex is back in back in a condo in a different stage in his life, and uh, it's cool to to see, and that we and we still get a chance to spend a lot of time together outside of this. Um, the business, um, we're kind of coming up towards the end of it, but um, the business out of it, right? So uh, you were twenty three or thirty one. Um, the lessons learned on the not on the the laundry side but on the business side right like what's been the biggest takeaway as business owners that you've had over the course of the last you know call it five six years or something like that right like um put aside raising money put aside the challenges of standing up a laundry lab and COVID. but as a business owner what's been the the biggest growth lesson for you both i i know for me it's people hands down you I always say that it takes a village to do what you're doing, and I I give major props to the founders, the, the solo founders who can do do it on their own successfully. Uh, and I know they surround themselves with other people, but we've been able to have uh, a person right by each other's side every step of the way. Plus, uh, just un, un or seeing the unlocks that you get with surrounding yourself with the right people, uh, the network that we've built when you tap in. Alex sends one email, and we have 10, 15 people who can help us solve. Uh, five different challenges, problems. Uh, we're, we're one degree, two degrees away from really almost anyone that that we think uh, or that we want to talk to and can have an impact on the business. And then the unlock with employees and the, the hiring the right people is just um, uh, it's it's really cool to see, and it helps motivate every single day what we're able to do. So uh, the, the going back to it, it's just it takes a village to do what you're doing, and it's people at its core. Mine would be probably accountability and integrity. And when I say accountability, it's to yourself as well. Again, knowing when you're maybe not putting in the effort that you need to be, or you're being stubborn and you think that your idea is the best idea, even though I think deep down you know it's not, but you don't want to be wrong to your team because you're supposed to be like, like, and being able to tell yourself it's okay to be wrong. And it's even better to show that to your team that it's okay to be wrong and holding yourself accountable in every way possible, but also your team and expecting the same from them. And I think it works a lot better when you show your team that you're willing to be human and vulnerable and wrong. And um, that's where the integrity piece I think comes into is like, the, as long as the intentions are good and you're being honest and um, trying to make the best decisions for you, for the team, for the company, it comes through and it makes the accountability, accountability piece even that much more stronger and, and meaningful. I think a lot of people go down the path of I don't want to be wrong or this has to be the way because I came up with it or this is the thing that we have to do. And um, I think a lot of time gets wasted, bad decisions get made and money gets wasted as well. I think when that happens. We'll wrap up with this. You go back and you tell yourself in 2016 um, that this is what the business looks like. (laughs) Um, uh, And this is where you are. what do you, what is your 2016 year old think of where the business is now? I well, said so thanks for the shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so I, I never would have imagined that we got here, but looking back on it, I mean, it all kind of follows this path of logic. It's up and down and all over the place, but when you look at it logically, and I, I do wish we would have been doing what we're doing sooner, but I think that's part of the journey, and you have to stumble and fumble, and you make a couple of bad decisions to find the right one and end up where we are now. You have to have a pandemic happen to you to, 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 to realize there's a more scalable way to grow your business. Can we not, can we do it without the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. 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 Please. Yeah. So, same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an it's a good question. 
um, I think more of the motivation. We always have the mindset of like we're we probably should celebrate small wins and big wins more. Uh, but we we have a big mission here, and we're we we have the platform to do it, and it's just keep going. Got to keep uh, breaking down. It's not going to get it's not going to get easier, and so uh, just keep going. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's neat to look in the rearview mirror and kind of see where you've come from, and it reminds you that there are always bumps out there that push you one direction and another direction. Um, but you're exactly like you want it to be easier going forward, but you know there are going to be a different set of bumps and bruises that continue to knock you along. So y'all have done an awesome job. Um, it's really cool to get a chance to sit down, um, what, six years later and, and three years later with you um, and, and talk about the business and how it's grown and how both of y'all have grown. So thanks so much for carving out some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.